Welcome to Health Impact's Digital Health Talks, produced by Purpose Events, hosted by the Health Impact Live team, Megan Antonelli, Emily Raish, and Shahid Shah, Health Impact Chair and CEO and Publisher of Medigy. Each week, we bring you stories from the healthcare providers and technology leaders focused on fixing America's healthcare system. They'll discuss how their organizations are using technology to improve access, equity, and quality. For more than 10 years, we have been your no BS resource for the digital health tools that matter to patients and providers. Join us every Tuesday to learn how programs in telehealth, data analytics, cloud, 5G, artificial intelligence, and machine learning are improving patient experience and health outcomes across the globe. I just want to welcome everybody this afternoon to this keynote session. Um, we've got Dr. John Brownstein here. Um, the session is COVID-19, the path forward, a big data approach to eliminate existing gaps in vaccine distribution and overcome vaccine hesitancy. Um, so I am delighted to um, be the interviewer here with John for this session. I've gotten to know John since mid-March when I started as interim CIO at um, Boston Children's Hospital. And John, among other things, is the chief innovation officer there. Uh, he's an infectious disease epidemiologist and uh, ABC medical contributor and just really well known um, to many. So uh, and doing great work. So um, this should be a, a great conversation, John. Great, um, yeah, no, thanks, Sue. I, I do wanna encourage people, um, if they have questions or anything in the chat uh, while we're talking, that's fine. We've got someone who's gonna moderate and tell us if there's questions that we should cover, but shall we jump in, John? Yeah, let's do okay. it. All right, so you've spoken in the past about your research on digital exhaust which I find fascinating, um, uh, data from consumer interactions with devices, social media, and more, and how it can be used to learn how they should and could be better engaged with the healthcare system. So first question is, what perspective has that data given you on more effective public health approaches to COVID as we move forward? Yeah, well, thanks, Sue. And you know, it's been fun to get to know you here at Boston Children's over the last several months. Yeah, so my work over the last decade, or actually more so, has been trying to think about data that exists outside of traditional healthcare. You, you and I knowing the challenges of implementing electronic medical record and extracting data out of that environment, you recognize the real challenges of building a view of population health, let alone a view of a state or a country or maybe mm -hmm. the globe. And mm -hmm. so we've been on this sort of search for data that can sort of exist outside traditional channels of information flow. What are the information streams that you can tap into to get sort of real-time population view of emerging health issues, whether it's an emerging infectious disease, whether it's chronic conditions, health behaviors. Um, many years ago, we started working, um, recognizing that the web had huge amount of insights, a lot of unstructured data, but if you could tap into that knowledge, you could get a wealth of information about emerging public health trends. And so we started building tools that leverage natural language processing and machine learning and started mining news and, and social media and blogs and chat rooms. 
and built infrastructure that allowed you to basically comb the web and get insights about diseases and populations. This sort of spun off a whole field of digital epidemiology, which is, you know, utilizing the massive data sets, you know, what people search for online, what they might like on Facebook, what they tweet about, all of that content has some portion of it related to health behavior or health mm-hmm. outcomes. And if you can tap into it and use the proper types of tools to extract that knowledge, you can get incredible insights. And so we've been doing this for infectious diseases all along, H1N1, Zika, Ebola, um, you know, and name a particular emerging disease. And we've been working to, to take our infrastructure data mining and then eventually crowdsourcing to basically pinpoint emerging issues. And so with COVID, it was very similar in the sense that we had infrastructure already going, mining the web across many languages, and we actually identified the first signal of, of COVID outside of China through me, uh, Chinese language media sources talking about an unusual cluster of pneumonia out of the seafood market in Wuhan. And that was you know, the first sort of public insight about the event that we've been alerted the WHO about. And since then have been applying our sort of data mining tools to shed a light on the earliest moments of the pandemic to then, you know, the global sort of impact that it's had. And there's been many examples in which these data can be, have been valuable. They've been valuable, you know, in the early indications of what's happening, they've been valuable as we've tracked spread, they've been valuable and they've been valuable in understanding of behaviors, um, whether people adopt masking as an example, or their 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 motivations for getting vaccinated, um, we started building a huge amount of technology to support the surveillance of COVID in in many different ways. We have a large partnership with Facebook, and they they put a survey to millions of people daily about symptoms and behaviors, and that has created huge amounts of insight. Um, we run a project called Outbreaks Near Me, where we ask people how they're feeling, but then we ask them about their uh, their mask wearing behavior or uh, their vaccination status. Right now, we're able to get insights about breakthrough infections, as an example. And so all this data that is non-clinical in sort of its origin is providing this real-world benefit from a public health surveillance perspective and uh, an ability to sort of fine-tune uh, interventions and target them in ways, and especially in places where we're sort of resource poor and, and, and data data poor. And, and so that has been a real, and especially at the beginning of the pandemic where we did not have the public health infrastructure in play, these kind of data sets were incredibly valuable. Okay, let me, let me just ask a follow-up question on that in terms of the public health infrastructure that you ended on. Um, I have, you're the expert in this conversation, okay? I've been following a lot, reading a lot, um, learning as we go during this whole um, period of the last year and a half. Public health seems to be under attack in many states. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think there's a recognition that we need to strengthen our public health infrastructure. Mm-hmm. So everything that you were just describing, mm-hmm. is this across, I mean, if we're talking the the U.S., is this across the country and utilized in every state or is it really variable? Yeah, I mean, public health is definitely under attack. And I think in, you know, some ways, public health has been, you know, obviously severely underfunded to sort of right. respond to this pandemic. So, I mean, there's some blame being placed at the, on the CDC for some of the challenges and the lack of preparation, but mostly it's the lack of resourcing and um, ability to truly respond as an organization. And so, yes, like what we've seen is sort of 
you know, a, a, a heterogeneous response to the pandemic um, and the application of new data and new methods, you know, that's highly variable across uh, the country. Some, you know, local public health departments have been both incredibly resourced, but incredibly innovative in the ways in which they're thinking about data, but also in the ways in which they're making data available. And some have been a little bit slower to sort of think about, you know, utilizing data. And we're seeing this play out right now in our inability to fully understand what's happening even across the country now. There are many public health departments that have slowed down their pace of reporting um, there, you know, if you look, I, I know we're all trying to create a sort of a national view of what's happening um, in terms of cases and, and test positivity rate, but the data is very, uh, is, is highly variable. You know, some local public health are only reporting uh, weekly, they're not capturing the same level of data. And so we really do not have a uniform representation of public health surveillance uh, across this country. And that, you know, you know, we've known this for, for many years, but it's been especially highlighted by this pandemic. Yeah. And and we can only hope that it will be the eye opener that we need uh, to improve that situation and yeah. greater investments. Uh, so let's talk about the um, vaccination rates. Uh, according to the CDC, there are approximately a thousand counties, is that right, in the U.S. Yeah. that have vaccination rates less than 30 percent. I right. assume that's the fully, fully vaccinated. Um, so what are the factors that are driving these numbers in these areas, do you think? And is it hesitancy, education, access, or all of the above? And what can health system and digital health leaders do about it? Yeah, really good question. I, I mean, this is, is a real problem that we've seen mm -hmm. um, across uh, the country, that we have under-vaccinated communities, and that's being highlighted by the fact that we have these surges in cases in many parts and we know that the vast majority of the places that are experiencing outbreaks now are places that have not had adequate vaccination rollout or, you know, maybe prior immunity or some combination of the two. Um, you know, there's a combination uh, of vaccine confidence um, that we know ex persists. And that's, you know, an area that we've been working on actually for many years, even prior, you know, prior to COVID or the reasons why people decide to get vaccinated or not. And, mm -hmm. There's significant mistrust of the government, mistrust of the safety of these vaccines, um, mistrust of the speed at which they, they came about. Um, there is a concern, of course, that you know, these vaccines are more risky than the, the disease itself or, the, or COVID itself is not an important pathogen. And, so, and you're seeing that play out right now in places like Missouri and Arkansas, where you know, there's major surges and yet, you know, it's still not convincing people to get vaccinated. Now, I still think that um, that access plays a large part in sort of what is holding off many people. It's not that they're so morally opposed to the vaccine. It's just a combination of convenience and and motivation. And so we've done a lot of work around a concept called vaccine deserts. And so these are places that just do not have a the real capacity to, to offer vaccines to communities. And we know about 20 million people live in a vaccine desert. Yes, there's the statistics that 90% of the population lives within five miles of a, a vaccination site. Well, there, you know, that leaves 10% of the population that is well not within. And you know, we've done analyses and network analyses to show that you know there are many parts of the country that are you know over 30 minute drive. And so if you have a 30 minute drive, plus you're on the fence, plus you can't get paid time off, plus you can't get, you know, childcare, or you, mm -hmm. you can't afford to get, deal with the side effects of the vaccine, 
all those factors together are going to make for uh, make for a decision that is sort of not in favor of getting immunized. And so what public health can do is, is sort of optimize the network. How do you place vaccination sites where people are? Bring vaccine to people, not people to vaccine. So, you know, there's, you know, mobile delivery, there's, um, you know, at, at, at ramping up, you know, primary care where you can also have a conversation. There's sort of you know, houses of worship or other types of mm-hmm. commercial settings. So there's, there's plenty that can be done. We run a project called the Vaccine Equity Planner, uh, which is all about arming public health departments with a, a view of where vaccine deserts are, but then also how to optimize their network too. Great, great. I wasn't sure what the vaccine equity planner was. I'm unfamiliar with the vaccine finder, which that's where you put the zip code in, right? And you find the closest place to you, correct? Uh, yes. Well, vaccine finder was actually something we started about 10 years ago um, for H1N1. And then with, okay. with uh, Operation Warp Speed and the CDC, we, re- we reformulated the whole infrastructure um, to be part of the flow of data around covid and we, we relaunched it as vaccines.gov. And so vaccines.gov is our, the site that we run out of Boston Children's in collaboration with the White House and CDC. And that is the main tool that, um, that people can go to, put in their zip code, pick which vaccine they're looking for and figure out how, where it is and how to make an appointment. Right, so say more about Vaccine Equity Planner and what that's able to do and uh, the impact of that. Right. So with vaccines.gov, it's all about giving people a view of where vaccines currently exist in the community. Um, but with recognizing that, you know, while we have, you know, about 60,000 sites across the country that offer vaccines, they are not necessarily, you know, fully optimized to the whole population. And so the vaccine equity planner was designed as a way to say, okay, well, we have, we know where the vaccine deserts are based on drive time to sites. So we know where the gaps are. We also know where there's uh, vaccine confidence issues. We also know where, you know, potential sites could be placed. So primary care sites, other types of of commercial settings, and it would arm public health to say, okay, here are gaps that we may or may not even know. And here are some target sites that we could place vaccination locations in that would fill in those gaps and, and create coverage and in places where, you know, we have this issue of, you know, there's actually many, you know, there could be thousands of people that are looking for the vaccine that are not in the anti-vaccine, but they're looking to get vaccine, but they happen to be in a desert, that would be an optimal place to create better access. And, and that's what this the site does. This is a collaboration with Ariadne Labs. And, you know, this is, you know, this is something that, you know, we're now working with local public health to really, you know, improve the access as we're dealing with this long tail of trying to get people vaccinated. Okay. So, so you mentioned vaccine confidence, say more about that. And, and how does that tie to the vaccine hesitancy? So vaccine confidence is uh, through data that we collect via, via surveys. We have uh, different data sets that we pull. Uh, one is through a collaboration we have with SurveyMonkey, where we actually, you know, query people off of SurveyMonkey surveys where they do optional surveys and get data about people's willingness to get various vaccines. And we can track confidence in each of the three major vaccines across the U.S. and how they've shifted. And for instance, how the J&J vaccine has has really gone down in terms of confidence. Um, And then, you know, we have data from Facebook. So the Facebook surveys that are being put out. So 
across different tools uh, that are basically out there serving people, we get sort of a general sense of confidence and we have high geographic very, uh, you know, resolution. So we can target down to the zip code level uh, where or county level, what the level of confidence in the vaccine, the willingness of people to get the vaccine, whether they're, you know, waiting, what, you know, and then we can also start looking at incentives. What would drive people to change their mind? Is it, you know, is it lotteries? Is it paid time off? Is it, you know, what is what is the motivating factor for people to make a decision? Okay, I'm smiling because there's there, and, and I'd be curious as to your view on this, but the lotteries, knowing that we're willing in some states to give millions of dollars to people as incentives yeah. when, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you take the international issue yeah. and people who don't have vaccines, countries that, you know, that are yeah. waiting for it um, yeah. and that we need that kind of incentive here, I, you know. I don't know if you want to comment on that. <laughs> it, it's kind of incongruent. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think, you know, we've always taken a global public, public health lens. Yeah. And so when you think about vaccine equity issues, you know, it's it's a bit jarring. You know, there's, you know, so many countries have yet to have, you know, have their first vaccine. Healthcare frontline workers are are, are still without their first shot. But then here we're still we're trying to you know encourage people with um, with you know lotteries or free beer or whatever yeah. it is yeah. and now you know of course that's part of the conversation with boosters you know what is it, is a booster really you know necessarily part of the conversation mm -hmm. when we know you know there's still this sort of access concern across the globe right right so I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot here to a question that we got and then we'll come back to some of the other questions I have for you so there's a question from. Pamela Aurora, she's at Dallas Children's. Uh, the question is, can you share a couple examples of where your insights have been leveraged by BCH, uh, Boston Children's clinicians, and a couple examples of where insights have been leveraged by the broader healthcare community? And a thank you for your leadership with analytics, John. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, on the BCH front, I mean, obviously, we, I mean, I don't know if that was COVID specific or not, but we have been working really hard to understand and forecast risk about COVID from the beginning. And that data, you know, the modeling that we were doing to basically understand where the trajectory of this pandemic was going really had impact both on informing important decisions around how the hospital operations could go, because of course, knowing what we might experience in the uh, in, in, in sort of the community would impact uh, our staff specifically, but then also uh, would impact how we you know deliver care to our patients. And and because I also um, chief innovation officer and run the digital health efforts of the hospital, we had the capacity to completely shift our operations to virtual care during the pandemic, and we had the underlying infrastructure. And the ability, so with the insights about what's happening with COVID, married now to our ability to then pivot to digital, we could essentially lend our uh, support to essentially um, shifting the ways in which we took care of the patient. So I think that probably is one of the, the best ways, sort of internally. I mean, externally, I mean, you know, we've had a lot of different projects and impacts. I guess the one that happened during the pandemic is which may be, you know, super obvious, but we had a whole effort on the value of, of masking. And we produced some of the first empirical data to show that uh, community level masking uh, was, would actually drive transmission down. And, you know, unfortunately that was 
a topic that was completely um, uh, controversial for reasons that you know I, I really find stunning. But we had to create you know empirical data and, and analysis to show that you know a community that undertook masking could drive transmission down, mm -hmm. um, and we were able to show that through those sort of large data sets we were we were collecting, and that was you know important insights that then sort of led to a lot of the sort of discussions at the federal level, which was, you know, really pushing masking uh, more broadly. You know, we've been working in a wide range, you know, for the most part, more recently working on, on, on vaccinations and right now a big focus on understanding breakthrough infections. And so there'll be more data around fully understanding how, you know, vaccination as an intervention is going to work over the long term. Okay. Um, uh, I'm very curious about breakthrough. What's the right phrase? Breakthrough. Um, Infections, yeah. 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 Do you have more that you can say about that at this point? In terms yeah. Of I mean, I think generally speaking, we are trying to, you know, it, it, it problem is that, you know, um, we're not seeing a ton of really good granular data about breakthrough infections. So we don't have a great handle on it. Okay. The viewpoint is, and based on the data that we have, you know, we're seeing it, it happens, but for the most part, it's happening and producing you know, asymptomatic or, or very mild disease. Um, and the probabilities of onward transmission are, are greatly diminished. So both like, both vaccines create protection against severe disease, even moderate disease, and they create some level of protection against transmission. Now, will they happen? Yes. Um, will severe disease occur in small numbers? Yes. And the more transmission that we have that is among unvaccinated populations, the more breakthrough infections we're likely to see, especially among vulnerable populations. So, you know, every sort of exposure increases your probability of getting an infection. And so, you know, even if you have a vaccine, you know, you're vaccinated, if you're, you're exposed enough times, you will eventually be infected just based on probabilities. And because of that, if you happen to be vulnerable or maybe immunity from your the vaccine is waning, whatever it is, that's you know definitely con concern that we have, and then on top of that, you know we have this concern about you know variants that might evade a vaccine, and the more that we have transmission occurring right. in under vaccinated populations, the more opportunities we have for a new variant to emerge, and that's right. that's what we're especially concerned about. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we talked about access. Um, let's talk about hesitancy and how can the data be used to get people who are hesitant into the, you know, vaccinated category. And, um, you know, I've some of the stories I've seen lately and some of the data um, that it's unvaccinated who are being hospitalized and unvaccinated who are dying of COVID, which um, I say somewhat, um, I don't know how I want to characterize it, but for people who think that those of us who are vaccinated is a great experiment and yeah. we're getting pigs, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Too, it seems to me that there's another experiment going on, which is the unvaccinated and what's right. happening. Um, you uh, know, people. Yeah, it's a problem. I mean, again, like as I sort of said before, I think if you can improve access, you can actually change the conversation. I think that we have underutilized our our primary care workforce as a tool mm. to have those conversations because mm. most of vaccinations were occurring in mass vaccination sites or pharmacies. Mm. 
Mm. That's that's not a place necessarily that people have relationships. It's possible they do, but very often they don't. And so right. there's no natural conversation about a vaccine. In a primary care visit, there's an opportunity to say to have a real deep conversation and and it lead to an immunization on the spot. And that's why there's a big focus on primary care and family medicine as you know, the Biden administration launched a new effort. That's mm. part of it. Part of it also is the ground game. And I know there's a very, uh, I guess it was a hot topic about the door-to-door conversations. I think that got misconstrued about people showing up in doors with needles in hand ready to jab you. And it really is just about conversations and education and, and discussion and, and trying to you know deal with misinformation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's definitely part of it um, mm-hmm. as well. And so I think mm-hmm. that's where there's a doubling down now at, a, at a federal level, say, okay, Mass vaccination sites worked for the beginning. They don't really work now. Now it's all about real individual level conversations where you can ha- make a dent in um, vaccination coverage. Um, yeah. And that's sort of how you deal with it. So it's, you make it super convenient. You make, you create conversations and, and I think you, you know, you make headway. You don't make, you don't make huge gains, but you start chipping away at it. Yep. Yep. So um, PCPs actually have, I, I'm assuming J&J, they have J&J available to them to um, yeah. get vaccinated on the spot. Uh, I, you know, I think we're finally seeing it. I think it's the range of vaccines, but I think, you know, we're finally starting to see it. Um, I think depending on the capacity of the primary care physician, I know that there's different requirements, obviously for freezing, but we're going to, yeah, I think depending on what is possible in a primary care office, you'll see, you know, different vaccines. Okay, great. Um, do we, um, I'm just going to ask our moderator if there's any other questions that we should be answering. I see some stuff in the chat, but I haven't, I haven't read it yet. So I'll just put that out there. Um, let's, um, let's talk about um, looking ahead and the Delta variant. Um, uh, what, what do we need to be doing to prepare for life with this virus in the coming months? Um, knowing that it's still here, it's not going away. Um, coming months, coming years. Yeah. It's an interesting one because obviously there's in the coming months, we're thinking about schools and trying to get, uh, school systems open to full in-person learning, um, and making sure that what we're doing for our kids is to keep transmission down and, and, but being flexible because certain communities are going to be dealing with, you know, flare-ups of transmission and others Mm -hmm. won't. So Mm -hmm. trying to get kids back to fully normal in-person learning as as much as possible, but Mm -hmm. recognizing that layers of protection, of masking, social distancing, room configurations, ventilations, testing, all of those things will be part of the sort of the ways in which we're thinking about um, dealing with the pandemic uh, for our children. I think that, you know, it, you know, we always say it's like a tale of two countries now. For vaccinated people, I think going forward, it's probably going to look like, you know, COVID will be part of our, you know, respiratory mix of mm-hmm. pathogens that we think about on an annual basis. Um, I mean, as a society, we have to decide what is acceptable as part of respiratory virus season or not. You know, with flu season, we had some some we accepted severe illness and death at a level that I think was significant. And we've worked on flu for many years that may or may not be acceptable going forward. Uh, but if, if we're sort of measuring against that, then depending, you know, 
COVID will be with us for, for many years. Now, I think we've really changed as a society in terms of acceptance around masking or staying at home when you're sick. And, and so I think we, we've maybe changed at least for the next several years. I think we may see a different attitude towards uh, respiratory pathogens. Um, and then I think the big question is, you know, obviously the big unknowns are variants or some, you know, we're already at Lambda variant, which is 11 down in the Greek alphabet. You know, there's, we're, we're, we're churning out um, real variants at a, at a high clip. So if, if one emerges that is problematic for the vaccine, causes severe illness, that will be, um, that will be a problem for sure. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, that's, that's the big sort of question. And then of course, for unvaccinated populations, it will continue to be more of an issue because we know the vaccines work really well um, and have seemed to have very durable, long lasting impact. So question around boosters for now uh, is really focus on those who might be immunocompromised, elderly that you know mm -hmm. may need it, but it's not going to be a broad conversation at this point for, for everyone. Okay. All right. So we have, uh, I want to come back to kids in a minute, but um, we have another question for you. What is the best way we can leverage data and technology to communicate public health messages to the general public? Yeah, it's a really good question. I would say that um, before COVID, um, you know, we, didn't even think about communicating public, you know, surveillance data to the public. Now people are completely uh, engaged in understanding statistics, uh, being able to, 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 to understand an epidemic curve. They understand transmissibility and mortality and infection rate and all, all sorts of metrics that, you know, never would have guessed um, that one could have sort of understood. Now, you know, we're seeing, you know, a level of sophistication on, on the part of public that's that's totally different. I think that, um, you know, so I think the more that we're open about surveillance data, the more that data is public, the more that's made available, it's great. And I think CDC is doing quite a good job of, of making that data available where they can. Um, in terms of uh, communication, um, you know, I, we're seeing a huge amount uh, of leveraging of, of social media, uh, I know that I've used, you know, Twitter and Instagram, uh, you know, for those purposes. And I think that we're seeing more and more. I mean, the amount of conversations that are going on in those platforms um, is astounding. And the numbers of colleagues that I have that are using these platforms to really educate the public is incredible. And that just did not happen before. Um, but at the same time, these same platforms with their benefit also have a huge amount of negative. There's and misinformation, disinformation, misinformation, yep. Um, yep. you know, you know, so they, they, you know, opening up those floodgates means that you have an opportunity to, to communicate, but also it, it, it's the fight against that misinformation that's really challenging. And, you know, daily I'm faced with someone sharing some, you know, some, you know, rumor about, you know, whether it's a disease or vaccine that, you know, have to sort of counter. So, mm -hmm. um, this is why it's so important for organizations like CDC and local public health to be incredibly involved on those platforms. Generally speaking, they have not been super involved or engaged in social media, but the more that they could be there and really, uh, you know, engage not in a dialogue rather than just sort of as a, um, as a, a tool, you know, using social media as a megaphone, using it as an, a tool for engagement. They don't really do very much of that. Mm -hmm. You know, I've always felt like you could use these platforms to have 
much, and it's hard to keep up with it, but to do much more sort of engagement. Yeah. Hasn't some of that changed under Dr. Walensky at the CDC in terms yeah, of- Yeah, to some degree it has. Um, obviously, huge amount of public communication. I mean, yep. she's done a great job of being out there and, 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 but I think, you know, there's still more to be done. You know, sure. not every- not everyone is watching the morning shows or, you know, <laughs> CNN, yeah. uh, you know, people are on YouTube and they're in, you know, on Facebook. And so, you know, those are the places where some of those conversations probably need to happen more. And right. I think, you know, uh, generally public health has been very slow to engage in those, in those platforms. Yeah. Uh, actually coming back to kids, um, I, I don't know the answer to this. I'm asking you. You probably know where where do we stand for vaccines for kids uh, less than 12? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's a clinical trials that are underway now in, in cities across the globe. Recru recruited about 4,500 kids. Um, they are doing you know safety efficacy trials. Mostly, it's going to be looking at safety primarily, and then whether kids mount an effective um, antibody response. It's really hard to do these clinical trials because if, if it's, this virus is not fully circulating, it's hard to look at full efficacy. So, but they're going to be mostly focused on antibody response, and then you know their assumption is that um, it will look very similar to older kids, uh, twelve and twelve and over. So, um, I think the results are supposed to come in to um, to come in around September. Uh, and would assume that emergency use authorization will come very quickly after that. And so maybe not right before the school year, but right at the beginning of school year, we're going to see a lot of the kids so sort of uh, five to 11 uh, have access to the vaccines. And that will be, you know, that's over 20 million kids in the U.S. So, you know, it's, it's a large group that will then have access to this vaccine and could really impact, will impact both their health, their ability to, to return to normal, but then also drive down transmission in the community. Okay. Actually, I have a data question and you may or may not know it, but does the, um, the 12, what would it be 12 to 16 year olds that were approved? They're already approved. Yeah. yeah. Does the vaccination rate and the hesitancy issue mirror the adult population vaccination rate? It's interesting. Our data doesn't say it's exactly correct because we do see um, vaccine confidence go down as you go younger into younger adults because they don't see the potential value of the vaccine yeah. because they're not the ones necessarily yeah. being the most impacted. Yeah. But um, if in the younger kids, we actually saw a huge willingness for the vaccine and so it mm. sort of goes back U-shape. The issue is that- Well, that parents- Parents are saying exactly, but then the issue is their parents, and the parents, you know, are are pretty generally speaking opposed. You know, it's over fifty percent of parents don't want to get their younger kids vaccinated. So we have this sort of double conversation that has to take place between the child and the, and the legal guardian, and so that is going to be even more complicated as we go younger. And you know, the the willingness to get younger kids vaccinated goes you know down, so it keeps going down as you go younger and younger, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. There's a question, another one from Pamela here. Do you have a listening group in your team or marketing to follow how the social media messages are being received? John's point of the upside and downside of social media is honest. It's a really good um, question. I mean, I don't think it's a formalized listening group, but we definitely have people on my team that are focused on social media. 
um, and they are, you know, reacting to posts that we put out and responding to people and engaging in sort of, you know, real conversations. Obviously, there is conversations on social media that are not worth engaging in, but there are many that have honest questions and dialogue. And so we do a really significant job of trying to, to, to have those conversations engage um, and use it as, as, a, as a tool for, um, you know, really, you know, try to inform people about the you know, best in class science. Um, so, yeah, so that's, but I agree, like, there's not enough of that being done. Um, and because the temperature is so hot, there's, you know, there's very divisive conversations, not really ones that are really aiming towards, you know, agreement. But I actually have had multiple conversations on Twitter that have gone from being Twitter conversations to, to email to phone conversations and you know really been able to you know engage people in, in sort of helpful dialogue um you know but that's not always the case yeah yeah well one person at a time right yeah exactly yeah, yeah. And there may be some more questions so uh we'll see that in a minute here um from the moderator uh just in in closing in terms of my questions for you um Oh, okay. There is a question about, about kids here. Thank you for addressing the vaccines for children under 12. I agree with Donna that here in Utah, so that must be in the chat. We have a large youth population. Have you seen any variations so far between Pfizer, Moderna, J&J in trials for patients 12 to 16, or is it too early to tell? Yeah, th thanks for that. It's too early to tell. Uh, we haven't seen the data yet. Um, I don't think J&J is engaged. In, they may have engaged in younger age groups. We've not seen it. Right now, it's just Pfizer that's available in the 12 to 16 groups. So we have no comparison. We will eventually see that for Moderna. Uh, but we have, there, you know, there's, no, there's no data yet to, to, to fully understand because right now it's only one approved vaccine that we have inside. Um, so yeah, there's, not, there's, no, there's no choice. Okay. All right, great. So um, my last question for you is, um, well, maybe it's, the maybe it's the last, I actually have another one. Um, is there anything else you wanna share in terms of what you've learned, uh, where you've struggled, what you see for the future of public health in a post-COVID world, whatever post-COVID and whenever post-COVID world can be declared? I don't know. <laughs> well, listen, I, I'm pretty excited. Um, you know, there's been a ton of innovation, more resource put into public health than I could have ever dreamed. So I think, you know, overall, we're going to benefit greatly from the amount of people and the amount of interest, the new sort of, you know, workforce that's probably going to want to enter public health, I hope, um, yes. people that have gotten excited about it, you know, like I got into the space because I, you know, read the, you know, and watched the movie Outbreak, but like, you know, this is a real world version of that. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's a bigger motivator. Uh, there's also an incredible amount of tech and, uh, and sort of engagement from, you know, leading tech companies. I hope that there's innovation in startups that, you know, there are very few startups that think about public health. Um, my only concern is, you know, there were a lot of people that entered in, um, built a lot of things and probably will walk away. And so a lot of that innovation mm -hmm. may go sort of, you know, go, go to mm -hmm. waste because there was no handoff or no someone on the other end to really manage all those tools and visualizations and insights. So I do worry a little bit about the graveyard of all this COVID mm -hmm. effort that, you know, people will lose interest in and, and sort of just, you know, put in the trash. So that is the worry that I have. You know, we've had incredible engagements with, you know, as I mentioned, large companies like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple. But, you know, the question is, will we be able to retain some of their interests yeah. going forward? 
Um, and that, you know, I hope at least to a certain degree we will. Yeah, well, um, there's much to learn and to be sustained going forward. Um, I will I will say I am halfway through Andy Slavitt's book, Preventable. Oh, yeah. I know it's not just about what's happened, but, you know, how do we prepare yeah. um, for the future? Um, halfway through. Uh, my last question for you, um, for people to stay informed uh, and continue to learn, uh, any particular advice or resources that you would suggest? Yeah. Uh, other than, you know, other than following you, John. I think follow me on Twitter. Twitter but uh, no, no. I, I mean, obviously a huge amount of dialogue is happening in those places. A huge amount of science is getting, you know, put to the forefront in real time. Um, you know, there's for infectious disease people out there, there's a, a network called ProMed that's a really good social networking devoted towards these kind of topics. Um, so I highly recommend, you know, signing up, up for that, um, you know, and then, you know, there's, there's plenty of enthusiasm from, you know, organizations like the American Public Health Association, they put out incredible content. So there's, you know, there's great societies out there that, you know, where you can, you know, you can engage and learn and join annual conferences. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's no shortage of, I'm sure people at this point are, are ready to not read about COVID uh, for a little bit, but you know, <laughs> no shortage. Yeah. Well, that. yeah, I wrote about this week in my blog and I said, you might feel like it's behind, but it's not. No, and we no. still need to listen to the experts and follow the science and stay yeah. informed. Yeah. Um, there is a question. Do you see this question from Rich Pollack? Do you see it? Yeah, I see it. Um, but let, maybe since we're at time, maybe I can follow up by email. Uh, yeah, that'd in. be great. May, may not want to end off on a talk about a statistical talk about predicted death rate. Um, yeah, I, we're, I, I, we're I trying to leave on a Rich is cognizant of that and asking it, but maybe we can follow up. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, uh, I don't see any other questions. Any any closing comments, John? This no, just thanks for, for thank you for for chatting with me, and thanks to, to the whole group, uh, Megan and Emily, and all to having me for today. Great, thank, thank you. you. Bye. Thank you for joining us for this week's Health Impacts Digital Health Talk. Don't miss another podcast. Subscribe at digitalhealthtalks.com. And to join us at our next face-to-face -face event, visit healthimpactlive.com.